like to use, turn with me to John chapter 8. That's going to be our text for today. I've said it before, but they didn't kill Jesus because they liked him. They didn't uh, put him on a cross because they thought that he was such a a good guy. The, The religious leaders viewed Jesus as a threat He was a threat against what they believed about God. He was a a threat against their power and their authority. They viewed him as a threat and that he might lead people astray in their thinking. And I think a lot of them were well-meaning in maybe their concerns about Jesus, but even more of them, they just hated him. They didn't like him. They saw Jesus as a spiritual risk. And what we see in the Gospels is that as Jesus' ministry grows and, and he grows in uh, kind of popularity, as, as he grows in, in following, their hatred towards Jesus just continues to grow even more. And they were constantly getting into arguments with him, trying to lure him into debates They were looking for reasons to have him arrested, ways to get rid of him, and and they were willing to, to do whatever it took, to use whoever they needed to use to be able to to reach their agenda, to, to reach their goal of ridding the world of this guy. And we see this of an example of this in our text today. It's a text that, that if you've opened up your scripture, uh, you may notice that there's a, a little bit of a footnote or, or some italicized notes beforehand, like in my Bible, uh, that say the earliest manuscripts do not have this account in here, uh, meaning that it was most likely added later, and that's concerning for some. Uh, But I think of it kind of like this. When I uh, prepare a sermon, uh, I I use a couple of different tools. So I'll start uh, by by writing out notes on my iPad in in, in OneNote. And so I have a file for every sermon that I preach, and I'll I'll jot down notes. And then those notes start to take a little bit more shape and form, and they'll become paragraphs. And then eventually, um, I will handwrite my entire sermon um, on my iPad. And then I'll open up my OneNote file, and I'll open up my document that I'm going to text and type my sermon on. And oftentimes what happens is as I'm writing, I realize, oh, no, I don't think I'm going to include that, or this is a little long, so I need to cut it. Uh, and, and so I'll, I'll remove it. And, and sometimes I will literally copy or cut and paste it back onto the file just in case I decide to use it again later or, or I change my mind and, and, and want to reference it at a, at a different point. In fact, there are sometimes I will cut an entire paragraph on a Sunday morning and I'll put it back in that note. And if someone came across those notes years later, which why would they? And they came across this, this sermon and maybe they saw one of those things that I cut, they might look at that and go, man, that needs to be in this sermon. And they would put it back, even though I made the decision not to. And I think that that's kind of what happened with this story. My conviction is that while John may not have included this in his original gospel, this is a true story that he witnessed firsthand. He wrote it in his notes, but it didn't make the final cut. And somebody came across that note and said, that needs to be included. And and so they put it into John's gospel, and I'm so glad that they did. Because to me, this is one of the most beautiful accounts of Jesus engaging spiritually at-risk people people that we may even be able to see ourselves in their story. So let's look at the text together. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. 
It says at dawn he appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. And so Jesus is in Jerusalem and, and he's walking around the, the courtyard of the temple, this vast area that, that would have surrounded this main hub of, of worship. And, and John says that it was at the dawn of a new day, which means that the day is just beginning. And, and I imagine that while those courtyards are going to be bustling in just a couple of hours, uh, there at that moment, it was probably still pretty quiet maybe even a little chilly as, as the sun was rising over the Mount of Olives. And there were a handful of people who were out early that morning and they were walking around the courtyards, maybe preparing for worship, maybe waiting to meet friends or loved ones. And they saw Jesus come onto the courtyard with his disciples and they started to move towards him. And Jesus saw this crowd and, and he sat down to, to teach them. And we don't know what the morning Bible study was on that day. It could have been about prayer, maybe about um, loving your enemies and forgiveness, whatever it was. I imagine that Jesus had their attention. They were hanging on his every word. Their stillness matched the stillness of the morning around them. But this peaceful scene is soon interrupted. Verse three, it says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now there is a lot that is said behind those three words, caught in adultery. First, you have this poor woman who, who would have been completely humiliated. These religious leaders had stormed into the house that she was in. They, they threw open the curtains. They yanked her out of bed. We don't even know if she had time to grab a sheet and cover herself up. They just grabbed her and marched her through the streets where people probably shouted insults at her. You're a disgrace, how could you? Shame on you. As one author put it, Jerusalem became a jury and rendered its verdict with glares and crossed arms. And to make it worse, they plopped her right down in front of Jesus. They made her stand before the group and, and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And then John gives us a little insight into their motives. They were using this question, and I think at this woman as well, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So clearly, this woman caught in adultery was, was spiritually at risk. She probably thought that there was no way that God could love someone like her. I imagine years of hurt and rejection left her with no sense of self-worth or value. She probably felt isolated and alone. She probably felt like she was in the margins and that there was this insurmountable barrier between her and God. And who knows the last time that she found herself at the temple. And now here she is, naked and ashamed, her sin exposed for everyone around her to see it. And she is surrounded by men who are holding stones, ready to be her judge, her jury, and her executioner. But I don't think that she's the only spiritual at-risk person in our text today. 
important. She's certainly the most visible. She's the one that, that everyone would have seen and, and her sin would have been in front of everyone the most. But, but I think that Jesus sees the others. In fact, I bet that Jesus would say the most spiritually at-risk people that morning were the ones that were holding the stones because they didn't know their need for forgiveness. They didn't know their need for grace. You see, the night before, Jesus had gotten into a little bit of an argument with these religious leaders. They'd had a, a run-in. And this is just me talking here, but I, I think those same guys set this woman up. It takes two to tango, as they say, and we don't read anything about the man, only this woman. And I think this is all part of their plan, including the guy. I think that it was all part of their plan to trap Jesus. They wanted him to say or do something that they could use to set him up and destroy him. These religious leaders looking for a fight paraded this poor woman through the streets and threw her before Jesus. They saw her as a pawn in their political and spiritual game, a person to be used. But Jesus saw her as a person. He saw her as a person made in the image of God, loved by him. He saw through her guilt, through her shame, and looked right into her heart. And I imagine Jesus looking into her tear-soaked eyes and he had compassion for her. And so how does he respond to their question about stoning her? It says Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And that's such an odd response, isn't it? Like was Jesus not socially aware enough to recognize the magnitude of this moment <laughs> before him? Did the awkwardness of it all just make him so uncomfortable? He's like, ah, uh, I've got to, you know, he went into flight mode and just bent down and started doodling and hoping that if he ignored them long enough, they would just give up and, and go away. Did the trap actually work and Jesus didn't know how to respond? I don't think any of that's the case. In fact, I think Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. Verse seven, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to take that stone in your hand and throw it at her because of her sin. And there's a lot of ideas about what Jesus is writing on the dirt that morning. And to be clear, we don't know. But my favorite conjecture and speculation is that Jesus, who knew the heart of every man in there holding a stone that morning, he's bent down and he started writing pride, lust, power, self-righteousness, greed, he started writing their sins next to this woman that they were casting judgment on because of hers. And, and maybe Jesus was taking this opportunity to remind them and us that we are all in the same boat. All of us are spiritually at risk apart from him. There is no one without sin. And whatever he wrote, Jesus got his point across because we read this in verse nine. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. And I love this little detail. The older ones first. 
I wonder why the older ones first, and could it be that they were the ones with the most wisdom to realize the truth? Yeah. Yeah, maybe we're in that same boat. They were the ones that had the wisdom to drop the rocks and turn away. They got to the point where only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I love this scene of Jesus standing in defense of this woman. He placed himself between her and her accusers and he silenced them. And then he turns his attention towards her in verse 10. Jesus straightened up again and asked the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. And don't miss this. Jesus didn't argue for this woman's innocence. She was guilty. He knew that. She knew that. She was caught in the act. There was no doubt about it. But instead of casting judgment on her, Jesus extends grace. Jesus was the only sinless person in the crowd that morning who had the right to pick up a stone and throw it at her, to cast judgment on her. But instead, he chooses to show her grace. And then he sends her on her way by saying, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus stands with her. He gives her what she needs the most. He gives her grace. And then he gives her this charge, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus does not condemn her, but he also does not condone her actions. He invites her into a new way of living that is in response to the grace that she has just received. And I think the same is true for us. God gives us new life and a fresh start through the grace of Christ. He does not condone our sin, but he does not condemn us either. And I imagine that we are all very well aware of what that voice of condemnation sounds like. And it probably sounds a whole lot like yours. But the words are coming from your accuser. Saying things like you are not good enough and you never will be. You did it again, even though you said you wouldn't. He said, you'll never beat this. There is no way that God could love you after that. These words of condemnation sound like our own, but they come straight from our accuser. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan stands before God day after day, hour after hour, accusing us of our sin. He points out each and every one of them and says, see, that's another barrier that's gonna keep that person from you. And he not only reminds God about them, he reminds us about them as well. And condemnation feels a lot like getting caught in the act and being surrounded by people with stones in their hands ready to throw judgment at you. There is no love in condemnation, only hate. But Jesus gives us something different. Jesus gives us grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, Verse one, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on later on in the chapter in in verse 33 and 34, and he says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, who has made us through Jesus like we have never sinned at all. Who then is the one that condemns us? No one. 
in Christ Jesus who died, no more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And just as Jesus stood in defense of the woman in our text, Jesus is interceding for us. He's doing the same thing for you. Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 34 like this. He says, Jesus in the presence of God at this very moment is sticking up for you. He is for you. And you may think, yeah, but but Jesus, you don't know me. No, he knows you. He knows where you've been. He knows your sin. But with each accusation that Satan throws at you, with each barrier that he wants to put up between you and God, Jesus is right there removing every single one of them saying, yes, the blood of the lamb covers that one too. My body that was given on the cross covers that one too. And what Paul is saying in these verses is that in the presence of God and in defiance of Satan, Jesus comes to your defense. All of us are guilty because of our sin. There are barriers between us and God. But Jesus took our guilt to the cross, destroying those barriers and giving us freedom, freedom from accusations, freedom from condemnation, freedom to walk in a new way of life and grace and forgiveness. And that's what Jesus did for the woman caught in adultery that morning. And it's what he continues to do for us. Whether we are the one who has been caught red-handed in our sin or we are the self-righteous person with stones in our hands looking to condemn others because they don't sin like we do. He challenges us to look at our lives, to look at our hearts and to follow him, to remove the barriers that get in the way. And that's the message of the gospel. And Jesus moved towards the spiritually at risk and he showed them mercy and grace. He helped them experience God's love and new life and a fresh start. And as a church, we want to be about what Jesus is about. We want to move towards the people that Jesus moved towards, which is why that part of our vision is, is to move towards the spiritually at-risk people. We put it like this. We will partner with others to tear down barriers that people have to Jesus. And there's any number of barriers that people might have. It might be a barrier that says that there's no way God could love them. We want to tear that barrier down and and show them God's grace. A barrier that says that the church is full of hatred, that it's isolated from the world. Maybe a a barrier of a previous church experience that, that, that left a wound. We want to be a place where people can find grace, can fall in love with Jesus for the first time or maybe again and start following him leave their old life of sin and brokenness behind and take on the new life lived in grace. And sometimes tearing down spiritual barriers, those barriers are are lack of access to this good news. And there are still places around our world where the name of Jesus has not yet been proclaimed, where the light of the church is not established. And so we wanna partner with global agencies and missionaries to bring the name of Jesus to those places to remove that barrier of, of lack of opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus. 
And one of the ways that we do that every year is by partnering with Samaritan's Purse and Operation Christmas Child. It is an incredible way to just send the gospel and the love of Jesus to people who may not otherwise be able to hear it or experience it. And we want to invite you into that with us again this year. Check out this video. Operation Christmas Child is a ministry of Samaritan's Purse. We pack shoeboxes full of toiletry items, school supplies, toys, to send the gospel to unreached people groups. The children are invited to a gospel presentation at a local church, and when they receive their box, they also receive a little booklet called The Greatest Gift. The Greatest Gift also lays out the gospel. It's something the kids can take home and share with their parents and their grandparents and their cousins. And then each child is invited to do a 12-week discipleship program where they actually learn to be disciples of Christ. In 2017, Sherwood Oaks became the central drop-off location for all of Mid-South Indiana, which consists of eight counties. Different churches bring their shoeboxes to Sherwood Oaks where we have the semi-trucks that we load up with all of the cartons full of shoeboxes, and then they go off to one of our eight processing centers across the country. When I was asked to be part of the Operation Christmas Child team, I thought that I was not capable of being the leader. And through the last seven years that I've been doing this, the Lord has really equipped me to be the leader of this team. He called me to do something that I thought there was no way I could do. Beth Holbrook had come to me and said, I wanna be part of this ministry, what can I do? Beth really saw that there was a need for me to be able to step out of the role of project leader for Sherwood Oaks so that I could step back and really focus on all of my uh, 10 drop-off locations and not just Sherwood Oaks. Saying that I would do Operation Christmas Child takes me out of my comfort zone because I like to be in the background. So I hope to expand myself to show God to other people and to let people know that even though you think that you can't do something with God's help, you can do it. And we need help with many things. We need people there on Sunday mornings, promoting it, answering people's questions, handing out shoe boxes. And then of course, during collection week, we'll need lots of volunteers to be here when things come in. We hope this year to collect 17,000 boxes. And so we're really using these shoe boxes as a tangible way to get the gospel into the hands of children. When you reach the children, you reach the parents. When you reach the parents, you reach the village. When you reach the village, you can reach countries. Sherwood Oaks has received an award this year for being a 15-year partner of Operation Christmas Child. So with Sherwood Oaks doing over 15,000 boxes last year, just last year we reached between 60 and 150,000 people. And over the last 15 years, even though I'm an accountant, you do the math. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, praise God for that. Jesus says that his mission was to seek and save the lost, and we want to partner with him in that mission. There's a variety of ways that we do that, and Operation Christmas Child is just one of them. And so it's super simple. Grab a box, uh, pack it up, get it over there here. Uh, just join us in signing up, maybe packing the bigger boxes onto the semi. Uh, we want to move towards the spiritually at-risk people in our community and around the world. 
We wanna be a part of tearing down barriers that, that people have to Jesus. And we do it hoping that they will experience the grace that we've experienced, that they'll be able to find new life in him. We don't know what happened to the woman in our account today. My guess is that this one experience and encounter with Jesus probably changed her life. And that same change is available to you today. And if you are here and you feel like you are living underneath this constant weight of condemnation, shame, guilt, over the things that you've done, maybe you realize and recognize your need for a savior, your need for forgiveness, And let today be the day that you find that in Christ. He has already removed every barrier keeping you from God. You just need to run into the arms of the Father who loves you. So I'm gonna pray and then Jamie will tell us how we can do that. God, may your grace continue to transform us. May your grace spur us on to move towards the people that you move towards, people that oftentimes are pushed into the margins of our society, overlooked, ridiculed, judged. Father, I pray that if there is anything of that inside of us, inside of me, that we will will drop the stone as we recognize our own sinfulness and need for a savior. And that instead we will take your posture, we will come alongside of people who are hurting We will come to their defense as you come to their defense and we will help them know, love, and follow Jesus. And I pray this in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can watch all of our video content, both current and past, on our YouTube channel? Visit youtube.com slash Sherwood Oaks to watch messages, series, and complete worship services.